Hey, good morning, and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning in person at 10.30 a.m., and this summer we are having outdoor services in the field next to our building. So bring a lawn chair or a beach blanket. Uh, We have pop-up tents for shade. Uh, Next Sunday, we will be having our church picnic lunch. You don't have to bring anything. Just show up. We're going to have church together, and then we will eat together. We're going to have some water stuff for the kids. Now, I suppose the adults could run through the sprinkler too if they want to, but we'll have kiddie pools and a sprinkler and things like that uh, for the kids to play in. Um, And uh, also, um, you know, my house is right next door, so we'll let the kids jump on the trampoline as well. Um, And then every week we're still taking donations, food donations specifically for the Wichita Family Center. And uh, even if you aren't coming in person, uh, you can still uh, send us a message and we'd love to arrange a time for you to drop that off and we can get it to them. And then uh, finally, uh, at the end of our time together this morning, we're going to have a time of guided prayer. And so I invite you to stick around for that and and respond to what God speaks to us uh, as we respond to him through prayer. If you have a Bible, we're taking a pause this week from our uh, study study through the book of 1 John, and we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's open our Bibles together. Hey, well, this week we are taking a pause from our study through the book of 1 John, and we are going to talk about the grace of God, one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, And and specifically, we're going to talk about how the grace of God evens the playing field and gives us a new scorecard. Uh, Before we get into it, let's read from God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, which is speaking about those who are not saved, those who are uh, still dead in their sins and, and have not experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence, I will frustrate. That's speaking of God towards people who reject him. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is is stronger than human strength. Verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. We submit to it. We surrender to it. And we thank God for his speaking to us and into our lives. An even playing field. You know, I love baseball. I do. And every so often, you know, you'll be watching the game and the announcer will say something will happen. There'll be an error in the infield or there'll be uh, an odd play or something. And he'll say, hey, just so you know, that's a uh, they've scored that an E6 or something will happen. And then they'll come back after the commercial break and they'll say for the folks keeping score at home, that play was actually changed and they ruled that uh, an error against the first baseman and not against the second baseman. So I'm, I'm going, what, what is that? And then I noticed when I would go to baseball games, uh, whether it was back at the Kingdom uh, with the Mariners as a kid or uh, at uh, T-Mobile Park, you know, and, and, and I would go to baseball games and I'd see people with these, these books in their laps and they've got pens and they're writing as the game goes. They're keeping score. There is a whole culture of scorekeeping in baseball uh, where fans come and they have this little scorebook and they keep record of, of the games that they go to. Uh, I've seen interviews with fans who have scorebooks going back decades for all the games that they've gone to. But what happens if somebody came and gave them a brand new scorebook and everything was different? Uh, everything had changed, how, how things were rated, uh, how much importance something got was totally different. And that's actually, I mean, if you're, uh, to keep the sports metaphors going, if you play fantasy football or any fantasy sports, fantasy baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever, that um, there are different rules in different leagues. And so when you're drafting a player at the beginning of the season, uh, a player might be really important in a 12-team PPR league, but in a 8 eight-team uh, non-PPR league, uh, a player might not be that important. Uh, a player could be very important in what's called a super flex league, which I've never played in. But then uh, when it's a regular format league, they're, they're just somebody you don't pay attention to. When you change the scorecard, you change the system. And in life, there are unspoken scorecards. Uh, I remember um, when I was in management for a chain of grocery stores, uh, every Every so often, you know, somewhat regularly, we would get a new store manager or we would get a new district manager. And uh, I would, you know, go, okay, the scoreboard has been reset. The scorecard is different. The previous store manager cared about these five things above all else. But this new store manager might care about two of those things and have th three other things that is really important to her. And I need to make sure that I'm going by the new scorecard and not the old scorecard. Uh, I would see employees do that where they would say, well, this is what was what we were taught to do is really important. I say, yeah, but that was the old boss. And uh, now we've got a new boss. And so, you know, we got to do what they want. The scorecard 
is how we base our lives. The world around us has a scorecard. Verse 18 talks about this, the wisdom of the wise. That's the the spoken or unspoken scorecard that the world around us keeps. Who's good, who's bad, what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down. That's the scorecard that the world around us keeps. And then Paul, in verse 20, starts talking about what I would describe as influencers, the wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher. And, and, and in, in our day, we would say, who are the influencers? And there are different people who have influence in our culture. And if they said it, then that's how it is. There, there are people who have no concept of science, right? But if Neil deGrasse Tyson said it, then it must be true. Or if Bill Nye the Science Guy said it, then obviously that's correct. Fun fact, I one time I sold mistletoe to Bill Nye the Science Guy, and he was telling me about uh, different varieties of mistletoe. I got like a free Bill Nye the Science Guy lesson. It was amazing. That, of all the celebrities I've met in my life, and I've met a few, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy and and Captain Sig from Deadliest Catcher, my two favorite. Uh, and... Uh, But if they say something, people go, oh, that's absolutely true. We have these influencers. Uh, You know, I don't know how many, how many people I've talked to. And and without generalizing, it's always, almost always dudes above or under a certain age. And they'll say, I saw this on the Joe Rogan podcast. And so that's how it is. Uh, People will come and say, I watched a documentary. And, And I have a rule about documentaries. If you come and tell me, I saw this documentary and this is what's going on, and you haven't Googled name of documentary fact check or name of documentary controversy or, you know, so on and so forth to see, is there anything that the documentary might have gotten wrong or is questionable or it was something that they were presenting as fact that was just kind of opinion? Uh, We have podcasts, documentaries, uh, social media influencers, as one as a youth pastor, I don't know how many kids would never read their Bible, never pray, and then just inundate their lives with the social media influencers and then come and say, I'm having, a, uh, I'm having trouble believing. Well, could it be that you're starving yourself spiritually and you're glutting yourself on the wisdom of this world? And then it's not just the young people. There are, are, are people who have lived longer who come and say I, they're just so frustrated and angry and it's because they've been watching cable news. And it doesn't matter which channel, whether it's, you know, Fox or CNBC or it doesn't matter. Like they've, they're watching these, these pundits, these influencers, these philosophers of the age, and then they're, they're just frustrated and angry. And Paul's saying the world has this scorecard. Now, how do you define the world? I'm going to suggest to you, and I think verse 22 backs this up. I'm going to suggest to you that our definition of the world, the world around us, the culture, the society, should include both the secular culture and and the religious culture. Paul, in verse 22 says that the wisdom of this world, and he speaks of both the Jews and the Greeks. And from the point of view of the first Christians, 
If we were to look for a modern 2020 America comparison of the Jews and the Greeks, we would be speaking of religious or moralistic people, the Jews, and secular, worldly people, the Greeks. And that's just not to say that there weren't Greeks who were very spiritual uh, and there aren't religious people who seem very secular. I'm giving a general idea. I'm suggesting to you that if you think of the world and you only think of the secular world and you don't include the religious world, I'm not talking about Christians. I'm not talking about people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. I'm talking about people who seek God through human-based religious systems. If you don't include both in your definition of the world and the wisdom of the world, then I think our definition will be off base. Think about the people who are furthest from God. The people who you might know who are the furthest from putting their faith in Jesus. It's not, it's often not the broken person, but it's the contented person. Jesus said that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle. You know, the little sewing needle, there's a little eye where you can thread the string through. It's easier for a camel to go through that than a rich man to go through into the kingdom of heaven. You say, well, I'm not rich. You know, I'm not one of those one percenters on Wall Street. Do you own a car? If you own a car in America, you are one of the 5% most wealthy people in the world. You and I are some of the richest people on the planet. It is not surprising to me that Christians proclaim the gospel in India, in Bangladesh, in China, in Africa, and the response is plentiful and wide. And Christians proclaim the gospel in Western Europe and North America. And the response is hard and increasingly hardening. The contented person is far from God. And their scorecard tells them that they're good. That they have what they need. What, why would I need to consider Jesus? The self-righteous person who may or may not be in the religious category, their scorecard tells them that they're a good person, that they pray, that they uh, do what they deem is necessary to be okay on God's good list. Why would they need the grace of God? The arrogant person, and this often, by the way, is both in the secular and in the religious world, the arrogant person who believes that they are on the moral side of things. And so I stand for right and I'm one of the good people on God's side and I'm not one of those bad people out there. And then quite honestly, in the secular realm, there are people who also believe in their own moral purity. I'm on the right side of history. I'm standing against injustice. And, and so they have a scorecard that tells them, I don't need to repent. I don't need to accept the undeserved favor. And that's what grace means, the undeserved favor of God. I can stand in my own arrogance and my own self-righteousness and my own contentment with myself. And my scorecard, the, the scorecard of this world, tells me I'm okay. 
But God has his own scorecard. And in verse 24, to those who have called both Jews and Greeks. So God is calling people from both the religious world and the secular world. He's calling people from traditional morality. He's calling people from modern morality. He's saying, all of you come and find grace and repentance and forgiveness of your sins. To those who he has called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying, we've been called out of this world and we embrace the wisdom of God as true. And now we have a new scorecard And what does this do? I believe, I want to suggest to you, it brings us to a place of humble equality. Of humble equality. God calls both the religious, the Jews, and the irreligious, the Greeks, to the same, to the same repentance and faith. I'm going to say that again. God calls both the religious and the irreligious to the same repentance and faith. The most upstanding, quote-unquote, moral person that you know needs Jesus. And the farthest, most heathen, pagan person you've ever met needs Jesus. They both need the same thing. And it doesn't matter how moral or upstanding that person is, they have the same need as the worst, most degenerate sinner that you can think of. Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, they all need Jesus just as much as that abusive husband needs Jesus, just as much as Stalin needed Jesus, just as much as the, the, uh, the drug addict that's living under the bridge needs Jesus. It's all the same thing. The world has a scorecard and we rate ourselves good people, bad people. But when you come under the grace, the knowledge of the grace of God, then you realize that the scorecard, the true scorecard, God's scorecard, is that there aren't good people and bad people. There's a loving and holy and pure God who brings all of us sinners into a place of healing and forgiveness and repentance. And then in verse 27, in verse 27, Paul writes, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. When he says the weak things of the world, he means you. He means me. He means the person sitting next to you. The weak is us. And when we realize that, how can we not place ourselves in a state of humble equality. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're not better than anyone else. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I want to make a suggestion to you that I believe is true. I believe that there are people who are mad at the church including Christians who are mad at the the church at large, the, the, the universal church. And they are mad at the church because they are evaluating things based off of the world's scorecard. And I believe 
that, you know, the scripture says, search me and know me and show me if there is any hidden sin within me. So I believe that God can speak through anyone to me to reveal areas where I need to surrender more to Jesus. So I want to hear the voices of people and filter that through prayer and through the word of God and say, is God speaking to me even if he's using a donkey? If you know the story of Balaam, is he speaking to me something I need to hear? But that being said, I do believe that there are people, including Christians, who are mad at the church at large based off of the world's scorecard. We received a letter at the church the other week, and the letter was not signed, and it said, I met a Satanist who was, uh, I met a Satanist who was cleaning up trash alongside the road, and why isn't your church cleaning up side, you know, trash alongside the road? And uh, I, I don't know if they know this, but um, along Hill Road, I actually do clean up a bit of trash. But uh, they, they, they're talking about works and virtue. And, and, and I've met other people who expect the church to do this thing or that thing because they're expecting the church to be some kind of community club. And there are things that we do for the community, and some of them we publicize, and quite honestly, some of them we don't because we're not interested in in shaming or or bringing kind of that that label on somebody. You know, if there's families that we've helped stay out of homelessness, we're not going to advertise that. But the point is that I believe there are people who expect something from the church or from Christians that's not what God's expecting, or they may be speaking something that is true without recognizing their own need for grace. And here's what I mean by that. I know Christians who are wanting to stand up for life. They believe that abortion is the ending of human life in a way that would be similar or equal to murder. And I'll be honest with you, Generally speaking, I agree with that. Now, let me be clear. If you, and there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of church-going people who have either had an abortion and they've never told anybody, or they facilitated their girlfriend or their, their, whoever they were with at the time having an abortion. I've talked to a lot of dudes who have guilt years, even decades later, over driving their then-girlfriend to the clinic, even pressuring her to have an abortion. And the grace of God is massive and huge and there is no judgment or condemnation from God or from me towards you. But those who stand and speak for life and they say we are a pro-life people. And then when Christians in the black and the minority churches say, hey, over here, we're being mistreated. Over here, we're, we're being uh, brutalized. Over here, we have fears. Over here, and, and we say, I'm not going to listen to that. So we could say, oh, I'm pro-life, but if I don't care about the lives of people around me, what good is that? On the same side, I have friends 
who are so mad at the church and they say, oh, the Christians, and they, they say they, they stand for morality, but they, they don't care about refugees and they don't care about the poor and they marginalize, uh, you know, all these people. And I say, okay, I can hear what you're saying, but let's be honest. If you, if you have moral rage, you also stand for things that the Bible calls immoral that God has said are not his design or his plan, and you've called those things good. What I'm, what I'm suggesting here is when we base everything on the world's scorecard, it's not surprising that we don't recognize God's scorecard. It's not surprising that we don't have a sort of a humble equality. There are so many people who, I only want to go to church with people my age, or I only want to go to church with people who think like me, or I only want to go to church with people who look like me or or hold the same views that I do, instead of saying, all of us need Jesus. All of us are in the same boat, old and young, right and left. We all need Jesus, and we were all called from the same darkness into the light of God. Now, there's a question here in verse 29. God, uh, Paul writes, so that no one may boast before him. And then down in verse 31, it says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I think there is a question of why does God care about our boasting? And maybe you say, I don't know that I've ever boasted. I, it doesn't seem like my, my personality. Let me say this. God cares about something because it's true. And people even if you don't think of yourself as a boastful person, and you may not be uh, some of the most boastful people I've ever met, it's obvious, but some of the most boastful people I've ever met, you figure it out over time because they're quiet. And they don't make a big show of it, but they're very prideful, very self-congratulatory, looks down on everyone else. God cares about our boasting because he knows that we will boast in something. And often... Often the biggest lies that we tell, the biggest lies that we tell to ourselves or the biggest lies that we tell to the world around us are contained in whatever we boast about. Maybe you've had to interview somebody for a job and you look over the resume and and you go, that seems very padded. That seems unlikely. Um, Now, maybe you're a person who's also padded a resume or two, so you know what this is talking about. But somebody has this resume and it's full of, you know, I did this and I've done that. And then you find out ah, there's a lot of uh, half-truths and some outright lies in there. People will go around and say, I did this thing and I did that thing. And then they'll leave out mistakes that they made. Or they'll say, hey, look at all this work that I did. I'm, I'm the most important person to this church. I'm the most, you know, this church can't survive without me. If, if any of you think that, I, if I think that, if you think that, the church, the church is built on Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. The church will go on. It was going on before us and it will go on after us. God cares about our boasting because he knows we're going to do it. And if I boast in anything, I want to boast in Jesus Christ because he has set me free. He has saved me. He took this foolish thing and said, I'm going to do something with that life. The world has a scorecard and it is false 
but it looks at God's scorecard and says that's foolishness. But those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we recognize that it just shows us the truth of this humbling equality that all of us need Jesus. Whether we were religious or irreligious, we were all called out of the darkness into the light. The only score that matters, verse 30, it is because of him, speaking of God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of, from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts in the Lord. Our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I believe that when he's speaking of righteousness, he's speaking of our new and true scorecard in this life. When we become Christians, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we become followers of Christ, we tear up, we get rid of the old scorecard, the old way I was basing my life, the old way I was judging how I am doing, the old way I was appraising myself for the world around me, and I've accepted God's new scorecard. Things in my life that I used to think were right, and as I've surrendered myself to Jesus, I've seen that God's ways are true, and I my heart begins to change and I say, you know what? I am accepting the righteousness of God and what God has called pure, I will call pure and what the world has called pure but God says is evil, then I will also call that thing evil. This new scorecard is bringing us to a place of righteousness, right standing, right living before God. Then he uses the word sanctification. And I believe that there are two big church words that every Christian should know. There are two big church words that every Christian should know. Justification and sanctification. When we are justified, that's when we place our faith in Jesus. We are made right before God. And he no longer holds our sin against us because it was taken and removed completely by Jesus' death and resurrection. Sanctification means to be set apart, to be made like Jesus. We've got this new scorecard. And when we're being sanctified is when we start to live by it. Our sanctification comes not just when I know that I'm saved and that I'm forgiven and that I have experienced the grace of God, the, which means the undeserved favor of God, but I actually start to live by it. And suddenly, I, I'm not seeing that person as good because they share my same politics, I'm recognizing that they need Jesus and that somebody who shares a different political point of view than I do, but they love Jesus, that they are holy before God. Sanctification means that I, I start to change how I, how I live and act. And the old scorecard might have said that that's good for me, but the new scorecard shows me the truth of what is good and helpful for me and what will lead to my destruction. Paul says that we're led to righteousness, sanctification, and to redemption, to be bought back, redeemed, brought out of this world of darkness. There are a lot of people, and I want to make a suggestion, there are a lot of people who come to church for a lot of different reasons. Some people come to church because they're in Christ and they want to be where Jesus' people are and, and they want to worship God with, with other Christians and they want to grow in their faith. 
Some people come to church because they want to get their kids some religion or they want to appease a spouse or a family member or a friend or whatever. Some people come to church because it's just what they've always done. It's possible that people, you've come to church and you've left frustrated or you're sitting here frustrated and it's because you're using the same scorecard as the world and you haven't embraced this new scorecard of God's grace and the playing field is still very tilted towards your favor instead of recognizing that we are all humbly equal before God. It's also possible that you haven't actually received God's grace. It's possible that people, there are people who have gone to church for even decades and then one day they realize, I need Jesus. I haven't surrendered my life to Jesus. I've, I believe in God. I've tried to be a spiritual person or a moral person, but I have been trying to do it and I can't. And I need Jesus who is God bringing himself to humanity. It's also possible there are people who are truly saved. They are in Christ. They have experienced the grace of God. But that grace was experienced a long time ago. And grace is the last thing that you're living in now. You're trying to live in your own goodness your own strength. And there is an invitation. There is an invitation to receive the grace of God. Justification is for those being made right before God is for those who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. And there is an invitation to be justified, to be redeemed, to be brought into a place of new life. Sanctification is for those who are in Christ and for those who are believers. And is it an invitation to experience new and afresh, new and afresh, the grace of God poured out on and over and in and around our lives so that we are so saturated with an awareness of grace that everything around changes. Everything around changes. We're going to enter a time of prayer. And as God has been speaking to us, I invite you to respond to what God has been speaking. If you hear what I've been saying and you say, I think I believe in God, but I don't know that I have Jesus, God hears you. And I believe that if you call out to God in prayer, he will instruct you and he will bring you in and reveal himself not as distant God, but as Jesus who is direct and personal with us. And I'd love to connect with you Adam at faithonhill.com is my email. I also believe that uh, if you need a fresh work of grace in your life, God is so good and so ready and willing to give and to respond. So let's go into prayer together and respond to whatever Jesus has been speaking to us. Well, as we have heard from God's word, I believe that that is an act of worship. I believe that we worship God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. We worship him by submitting ourselves to the reading and the preaching of his word. We worship God by gathering together. We worship God, yes, through singing, 
but it's not particularly effective in an online format. So uh, we sing live and in person, but on our online service, we look for different ways to express our worship and praise of God. And we want to respond to what he's been speaking to us. And so we uh, have a time of prayer. And I'd invite you to enter a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like for you, hands folded, hands raised, sitting, standing, kneeling, whatever is prayerful for you. I also invite you to be very uh, free in using the pause button. If you need to pause in prayer for longer, hit pause, continue to pray, and then unpause it, and you can keep going with us. This morning, we are going to go through a practice and a discipline called the daily exam, and although we do a weekly version of that. So as we enter a posture of prayer, would you pray with me? Our good and gracious Father in heaven, thank you that you allow us to come before you through Jesus. Jesus fully God yet fully human, and you have made the way to God for humanity. We ask that you would send the Spirit of God to fill us with the fullness of the grace and the love and the peace and the hope and the joy that comes from God. Lord, as we look back at our week, everything that has happened in the week behind us, Would you bring clarity to the victories that we have had? Sometimes we only focus on the defeats. Father, bring clarity to the victories we have had. Father, we ask that you would bring love and correction to where we have gone off, that you draw us back to your good and pure ways. Lord, we have emotions about how we feel about the previous week. Help us to be aware of them. Help us to be honest. And if you feel comfortable, I invite you to just speak out how you feel. Lord, I feel uh, joyful about the past week. Lord, I feel discouraged about the past week. Maybe I feel a mixture of both. Would would the Holy Spirit take our emotions and show us what is valid and true and what is false and a distraction? And as we consider the week ahead, the work you have for us, Father, would you prepare our hearts right now for the week ahead? Would you prepare our hearts right now for the work that we will do in our, our daily life for the relationships and the interactions we will have in our weekly routine. Help us to be hard workers. Help us to be faithful friends. Help us to be people who bring and represent the presence of God in the world around us. Lord, thank you that you do your work. We rejoice that you have taken us and you've made us useful for your purposes. And so we praise your name because of your work and your power. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. May the grace of God be evident in your life. May 
the peace of God be full in your heart so that you would overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.